This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Southern Gothic, as a literary genre, emerged from the influences of the wildly successful and enduring literary masterpieces of authors like Bram Stoker, Mary Shelley, and Edgar Allan Poe. These creators of Gothic literature utilize the elements and trappings of horror and suspense to explore the social issues of decaying institutions and the dark character flaws rooted in to their respective cultures. Often their stories included the paranormal or supernatural, as well as dark, vivid settings with enough depth to be practically considered a character itself. Of course, the Gothic genre was a natural fit for Southern writers during the early 20th century. Writers who had been raised on stories of the War of Northern Aggression, as told by their Reconstruction-era parents. Yet still, they saw through the poverty and enduring racial hostilities of the time that these tales were nothing more in the myth of an idyllic past. Folks like Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, and Tennessee Williams. But no author loomed as large in the genre as the prolific Mississippi native, William Faulkner. A man whose fascination with the Gothic aesthetic was so profound that upon one of his first life successes, he purchased a home whose history and character were practically the embodiment of his literary themes. A place that typified his oft-quoted sentiment, the past is never dead, it's not even the past. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic.
Murray Falconer and Maud Butler on September 25, 1897, in New Albany, Mississippi. The oldest of four sons, he was named after his great-grandfather William Cuthbert Falconer, a shrewd but well-known businessman and railroad entrepreneur who had served as a colonel in the 2nd Mississippi Infantry during the Civil War and then later became politically active locally during the ensuing Reconstruction era. Despite the man's murder in 1889 by a former business partner seven years prior to William's birth, his legacy loomed large in the Falconer family telling stories about the old colonel, as he was affectionately known around Mississippi, was one of the family's favorite pastimes. These tales sparked in William an early love for storytelling, giving him insight into the world of the Southern aristocracy and the difficulties of life during Reconstruction, themes that he'd eventually explore in great detail. The family had moved from New Albany to the nearby town of Oxford before William turned five. There, his mother Maud hired Carolyn Barr to come work for the family as a live-in nanny. The African-American woman, who Faulkner referred to as Mammy, had been born into slavery. The dismal tale she told young William and his brothers about her difficult childhood and growing up in the era of Reconstruction were in sharp contrast to the glorified stories they heard of the old colonel. And it's well documented that Barr's influence on William was the catalyst for his fascination with the politics of sexuality and race. From a young age, William's mother Maud and grandmother Lilia Butler also nurtured in him an appreciation of art and literature. Both women were voracious readers, as well as avid painters and photographers, and Faulkner took to these passions early on. But in spite of his remarkable intelligence, compounded by the gift of his somewhat financially secure upbringing, William Faulkner dropped out of school as a young man and never received a high school diploma. He bounced from job to job, partaking in everything from carpentry to a position as a clerk at his grandfather's bank. But the young man never took to much anything other than his artistic endeavors. Then, in his late teens, William Faulkner met the love of his life, a beautiful, and popular young woman by the name Estelle Oldham. The pair dated for a while, but unfortunately for William, a man from a wealthy family named Cornell Franklin proposed to her before he had the chance. Her parents bade her to accept the offer. After all, Franklin was a law graduate from the University of Mississippi, and Faulkner had no direction or proper means for taking care of Estelle. 
so she accepted, leaving William heartbroken. William left Mississippi and moved in with his mentor, Phil Stone, a New Haven, Connecticut-based attorney who supported the young writer's poetry. There, he began working for the Winchester Repeating Arms Company and continued to write until 1918, when he was lured away by the First World War taking place in Europe. The United States military had turned William away for his height, just shy of five foot six. So Faulkner traveled to Canada and joined the British Royal Flying Corps, lying on his application, not only about his birthplace, but also manipulating his surname, adding a U to Faulkner to make it sound more British. But the war ended before William had the opportunity to fight so he returned home to Mississippi. There, he made a brief and unsuccessful attempt to continue his education at the University of Mississippi, but he also continued writing. In 1924, William Faulkner's first collection of poetry, The Marble Fawn, was published with the help of his mentor, Phil Stone. So Faulkner headed southwest to New Orleans, drawn to the Crescent City, not just for the obvious aesthetic reasons, but to write for a literary magazine there. The following year, he sold his first novel, Soldier's Pay, with the help of his close friend and fellow novelist Sherwood Anderson. But Anderson made a much more important impact on the young writer, who soon took off to live in Paris for a few months. The American novelist implored William to return home and focus his future work on the world from which he was a native, one that he uniquely understood through and through, rather than searching for some far-off European setting of which the Mississippian knew very little. Fortunately, Faulkner heeded his advice, and in 1927, he completed his first novel set in Mississippi, called Flags in the Dust. The story dove directly into many of the themes he had drawn from both the tales he heard of the old colonel and those told by Carolyn Barr. Its plot centered around a decaying southern aristocratic family following World War I. Unfortunately, the novel was not well received, rejected by his publisher. But it was, however, Faulkner's first foray into the fictional Yaknapatafa County, a setting directly influenced by his own experiences in real-life Lawrence County. He would return to Yaknapatafa time and time again in his future writings, shaping it 
into a uniquely southern universe, complete with its own geography, history, and interrelated narratives. Now, living back in Oxford, Mississippi, William was also given a second chance with his long-lost love, Estelle. After 10 years of marriage and two children, she and Cornell Franklin had gotten a divorce. So in April of 1929, the same year he would release The Sound and the Fury, William Faulkner married Estelle Oldham. Unfortunately, timing was not on his side. And although his new novel received good reviews, it was released at the same time as the Great Wall Street Collapse, which threw the entire nation into economic upheaval. As a result, The Sound and the Fury did not garner much financial success. So in an attempt to support his family, Faulkner began working night shifts at the university to fill the gaps in his writing income. It was while working these late nights that he was able to write his next novel, As I Lay Dying. The following year, upon publication of this novel, William Faulkner purchased a home for his family. A home where he'd go on to pen many more of his literary masterpieces. A home where he'd spend the rest of his life and a home that some even believe his spirit still inhabits. He called it Roanoke. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Construction of Roanoke began in 1844, six decades prior to Faulkner's birth, and almost an entire century before the famous writer would purchase the property. It was built by Colonel Robert Chagog, an Irish immigrant and planter who migrated south by way of Hickman County, Tennessee, with his wife Mary. The couple settled in northern Mississippi on land that had been ceded to the United States by the native Chickasaw tribes in the 1832 Treaty of Pontotoc Creek. There, he built a profitable plantation in the countryside near Batesville, but Chagog chose to build his family's residence in the frontier town of Oxford. This small southern settlement of less than 500 had been named as such as a bold reference to the esteemed British University, the town's founders hoping to establish the new development as the center of higher education in the state. And by 1841, the Mississippi State Legislature granted them that wish, and the University of Mississippi, or as it's now known, Ole Miss, opened its doors there seven years later. It was that same year of 1841 that the Chagog family would move into their new home, just south of the town square on what is now Old Taylor Road. The two-story, white, Greek Revival-style house sat on about 30 acres of land and featured clapboard siding with a symmetrical front facade, five bays in width, in accordance with the popular style of architecture in the South during this time, the front door of the home was centrally located, featuring a second floor balcony directly above, supported by a pair of columns regally framing the entranceway. A curved driveway led to the new home, featuring tall cedar trees planted symmetrically to line the pathway, framing the Gothic Southern Mansion. In addition, Chagog had unique concentric gardens built that would one day not only become one of the primary features alluring Faulkner into purchasing the property, but also serve as inspiration for the tragic ghost story he would one day tell. Colonel Chagog resided in this beautiful southern mansion for only a little more than a decade before he himself passed away in 1860. He died an incredibly wealthy man who owned over 6,000 acres of farmland in Mississippi and about 90 slaves. His widow Mary and their surviving children remained for yet another decade after his passing. But in 1871, Mary would follow her beloved husband to the grave, and the property was sold to a Mrs. Julia Bailey. Julia resided there on Old Taylor Road for the rest of her life, eventually passing on the home, which became known locally as the Bailey Place, to her unwed daughter Ellen, 
who also continued to live there until her own death in 1923. The beautiful Greek Revival home then sat dormant for seven years. Its grounds, once meticulously manicured, quickly became overgrown and the building in dire need of repair. But the state of the property's thick overgrown acreage surrounding the home, known as Bailey's Woods, attracted the artistic sensibilities of William Faulkner. So he made a private arrangement with John Bryant, Miss Bailey's nephew, to purchase the home for $6,000 at $75 a month. Still struggling to find income, Faulkner rewrote his novel Sanctuary with the intention for it to become a bestseller. And fortunately for him, it did. He then sold the story to Hollywood for $25,000, giving him the financial ability to pay off the new property and begin the process of modernizing it. With everything from indoor plumbing and central heat to the addition of electricity, but in spite of this renovation, William refused his wife's wishes to tame the concentric gardens and overgrown grounds of the old Bailey place to the glory of the Chagog family's era. Some say he told Estelle only new money would ruin a garden like that. But for whatever the reason, William drew an immense amount of inspiration from his home that truly embodied the Southern Gothic aesthetic of having one foot firmly planted in the past. Faulkner christened the home with the name Rowan Oak, a nod to the Celtic legend of the Rowan Tree, which was believed to hold magical powers of safety and protection. The word oak was merely added for a little southern charm, because in reality, the surrounding Bailey's Woods was populated mostly by cedar, cypress, and magnolia trees. Estelle and her two children, Malcolm and Victoria, moved into the home with William, and several years later, their daughter Jill was born. Also moving to Rowan Oak was Carolyn Barr, Faulkner's childhood nanny, who lived in a cabin on the property until her death at the age of 100. It's said that Faulkner wrote literally all over the property. Classic and timeless works were born at Roanoke. Novels such as Absalom, Absalom, Light in August, and Go Down Moses. And to this day, there still remains an outline of his Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Fable, scratched into the plaster walls of his study in graphite and red. Then, on July 6, 1962, William Faulkner died from a heart attack 
most likely a result of his lifelong struggle with the bottle. Over the years, many have claimed to have seen Faulkner's spirit wandering at Rowan Oak, writing on the walls of his study. But the prolific author left no creative stone unturned in life, giving Rowan Oak its very own spirit, a ghost by the name of Judith. The old Falkner family pastime of storytelling was very much alive at Rowan Oak. According to this Faulkner-spun tale, Judith Chagog was the only daughter of the home's original owner, and for whatever the reason, the teenager found herself unlucky in love and threw herself off the balcony above the home's front entrance. Some claim she did so because her lover had merely left her. Others, that he died while fighting in the war. But for whatever the reason, the heartbreaking outcome is the same. Upon awakening the following morning, Judith's father tragically steps out of the front door of his home to find his only beloved daughter there before him in a crumpled mess, dead. The story then goes on to say that the old colonel and his wife buried the girl in one of the beautiful, well-manicured concentric gardens of which he took so much pride. The same gardens that Faulkner had intentionally left untended and overgrown. Faulkner would entertain the family's children with this story of Judith Chagog every Halloween often using props and candlelight, spooking them with tales of her apparition still roaming the property in antebellum clothing, heartbroken. Of course, while numerous tellings of the story do exist, one even documented by the niece he raised, Dean Faulkner Wells, Judith is absolutely nothing more than a figment of Pappy Faulkner's imagination most likely meant to keep the kids from playing on the dangerous second-floor balcony of Rowan Oak. The previous owner did in fact have many children, but none were named Judith. In 1968, six years after William Faulkner's death, Rowan Oak was declared a National Historic Landmark. Only four years later, his daughter Jill sold the property to the University of Mississippi, who now maintain it, not only for research, but also as a museum for folks to come and explore. And while some visitors claim to see Faulkner's spirit still wandering the grounds of Rowan Oak, it's much more likely that this home isn't as much haunted as it is merely a literary landmark whose historic life served as an inspiration to a prolific American writer as he birthed a uniquely 
Southern literary genre. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksnyder with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call Redacted History. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.